So good evening, everybody. Why don't we go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so once again, uh, I want to welcome everybody here to Sacred Heart Retreat House, particularly those who've never been to a married couple's retreat before, or who've never been to a retreat here before, or who've just simply never been to a retreat before. We're really hoping and praying that it's a spiritually rewarding time for all of you. Uh, as I said before, my name is Father Bryce Sibley. I'm a priest of the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana. I've been a priest about 19 years now, and this is my 15th or 16th year coming here uh, to do different retreats. And I really always enjoy doing the married couples retreats. And every year, I try to have a theme for my preaching and for our reflection. And as some of you may know, the theme that I chose for this retreat is the prodigal spouse based on or founded in Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 32. Jesus is probably most famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And what I want to do is read that parable, even though I know we're all very familiar with it, and then try to do a little bit of explaining where I intend to go. So I need to go back in the sacristy for one second to get the parable. So we'll do a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. And tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them Jesus addressed this parable. A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens, who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? But here I am, dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father quickly ordered his servants, Quickly, 
bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Now the older son had been out in the field and on his way back, as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, Your brother has returned, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf, because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry, and when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns, you swallowed up your property with prostitutes. For him, you slaughtered the fattened calf. He said to him, My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice, because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. So a rather long parable, but it's one that we are going to go back to over and over again over the course of our time together. And so what I intend to do is each of the five main talks is to focus on one area or one theme that applies to married couples, but in a real sense, it applies to anyone. So even if you were not married, hopefully uh, these talks would be able to speak some truth in your life. And we're going to do so by really sort of focusing on the different characters. Father, the older son, the younger son. And we're going to begin today with a theme that if we're going to ask anybody here, what is the, the heart of the message of the parable of the prodigal son, most would give the same answer. The message, the most central theme, is that of mercy. Of mercy. Of God's mercy in our lives and the mercy that we should show to others. And so it's most apparent when we look at the beginning of the parable focusing on the younger son and his relationship to his father. Now, no doubt the younger son committed a lot of sins. Drinking, gambling, spending his money with prostitutes. But the real sin that the gospel focuses on and the one that is going to be sort of central for our discussion is not all the shenanigans and the hoopla that he got engaged in when he was out sinning and spending all this money, but instead the breaking and the rejection, breaking of the relationship and the rejection of his father. That's the real core sin, and in a real sense, it is the core of all sins, where we distance ourselves sever that relationship with others, but particularly with God, our Heavenly Father. And so it's symbolic, this severing of the ties and the relationship of all of us as individuals in our sin. Because what does sin do? 
Sin impacts relationships. When we lie, when we cheat, we put a distance between ourselves and others, between ourselves and God. And particularly, that broken or strained relationship is the most apparent when we are looking at husbands and wives. And so husbands and wives sin. They hurt each other, sometimes in really big ways and sometimes in small ways that can be very unintentional even. But it doesn't matter. These sins, this lack of love, this lack of charity, can lead to strained or broken relationships. And as a result, whether it be in our relationship with God the Father, with others, or here with our spouses, we put up walls, we isolate ourselves, there's a lack of trust, resentment can build in our hearts. And ultimately, it comes, as we're going to see, a loss of sense of who we are, of our identity, both as child of the Father and as spouse in our relationship to our husband and wife. And so whenever in these relationships we see that we've done something to damage, to strain, to harm that relationship, some sin, there needs to be a movement of humility, a movement of repentance, where we go to the beloved, we go to the person that we've hurt and say, I am sorry for what I've done, please forgive me. And that's what the younger son does. The younger son goes to the father looking for forgiveness. Now the truth is, from the words of the gospel, is he really sorry that he hurt his dad? Is he really lamenting the fact that his father loves him so much and he did this to him by taking his inheritance and leaving? It doesn't seem like that necessarily is the motive. That would be what we call perfect contrition. When we are sorry for our sins that we do to God because we love him and we have broken that relationship. But it seems that more he's repentant because he's, he's down and out. He's lost all of his friends. He's lost all of his money. He can't even eat the stuff the pigs are eating. And he comes to his senses and he realizes, if I go back, even if I'm a servant, I'm going to be living better than this. This is what we would call imperfect contrition. That we're sorry because we're going to get punished. Or we're sorry because we don't like the state that we're in. And so the truth is, even when we are coming to ask for forgiveness from our spouse whom we have hurt, maybe our motives, our intentions are not the purest. We're not weeping because we've harmed the heart of our beloved, but maybe because we've hit rock bottom. We've really fallen on our face and the, the relationship is so strained that our husband or wife is threatening to divorce us if we don't change our behavior. That's what often happens, but it doesn't matter. We can still seek forgiveness and hopefully repeat it. And so in these relationships, just like the sun, we do it with God and we do it with our spouses. Before we go to ask for forgiveness, we often rehearse what we're going to say in our head. 
well, this is what I'm going to say, and this is what she's probably going to say, and then I'm going to say this. It's like we're playing a chess game. We're trying to think of every possibility so that we can get back in good graces, so that we can justify what we want. We want to sort of make a deal. And this is what the younger son looks like he's doing. So you can imagine that long journey back. He's thinking, okay, what is my dad going to, how is he going to react? How am I going to say this? How can I get back into good graces with him? And so he has this all rehearsed. And he, before he can say a single thing, what does the father do? He sees him coming from a long distance off, runs to meet him, and before he can say anything, he kisses him and he embraces him. The father was on the lookout for the son. He didn't give up on him. And he goes out to meet him. And then the son, of course, says, he starts his excuse, but the father cuts him off. Go, go clean this guy up. He stinks. Go put some clothes on him. Let's have a party. He is back. The son is restored to his sonship. That identity becomes much clearer who he is because he is there with his father. And so this teaches us something about our relationship with God the Father, and it should also teach us something about our relationships. God the Father is not waiting for us to apologize, and then he's going to forgive us. He is eager to show us his mercy. And so in the same way, when it comes to spouses and their relationship to each other, we shouldn't say, I'm not going to cook a nice meal until he apologizes. Can't use this to hold it over our spouse's heads. Instead, we need to be waiting to be able to embrace the spouse when they come asking for forgiveness. And this is the key. Again, a lot of what we just said is a nice introduction that helps us understand that dynamic of asking for mercy and seeking forgiveness. But it's the embrace of the Father. The embrace of the Father, seeing the Son and bringing Him in is the key for us understanding mercy. And if you almost listen to nothing else I say today, this is the heart of what my message is and it's going to spill into, hopefully, the other talks that I give. So often when we talk about mercy, and giving mercy, or granting forgiveness, we talk about it like it's something, an object which we give. Hey, I'm going to give you mercy. The technical term for that is to reify something, to take an abstract concept and to treat it like it is a thing. Here, mercy is a thing. I'm giving it to you. We often do it with love. Hey, I'm going to give you love. You can't give someone love. You can demonstrate it through your actions, but it's not a thing. But if we really think about it and understand that, we see how it applies to the corporal works of mercy. We're going to be giving you something. We're going to be doing something. But the reality is, if we believe that the embrace of the Father is that perfect symbol of mercy, 
we will realize that mercy is not so much about giving something or giving in general, but instead it's about receiving. Mercy is about receiving. Receiving another person who's often broken and filled with wounds and shame and receiving them in love. That's the embrace of the father. He receives his son as a person. That is ultimately what mercy is. The father shows mercy by embracing and receiving his son, taking him back into relationship. And so more than forgiving of sins, which is something we talked about and we're gonna talk about more, Mercy is so much more than forgiveness. Forgiveness is an aspect of mercy, but mercy is shown when we receive others in love. Not just those who sinned against us, that's forgiveness. Mercy as a whole is when we receive others in love. And that's why what I want to talk about today and for the rest of the retreat, is not so much just mercy, but merciful love. The father showed his son not just mercy and forgiveness, but he also, in that embrace, showed him a gesture of love. So when we live merciful love in our own lives, particularly in a relationship to our spouses, and our children in marriage, we are receptive to the other. We are open to receiving the other person, to embracing them. And of course, that embrace is something much more symbolic of an interior disposition where we're willing to receive someone into our hearts. But it's not just those who've hurt us. It's not just our husbands and our wives but it should be open to everyone. Because ultimately, as we'll see, everyone needs to be recipients of merciful love, but everyone needs to be received. The person who has something to say and needs someone to listen to them. The person who is suffering and is looking for comfort, a shoulder to cry upon. The person who is lonely and wants to be received by a friend. Especially though our spouses. Our call is to show them merciful love. Our call is to receive them at all times on a daily basis. Because when we do that, we are living and showing the Father's merciful love to others. Because ultimately, we can identify with all the different characters in the parable, but the most important one is the Father. That we are called in our lives to participate in and to reflect the Father's merciful love to the world. And the best way we do that is being, by being open and receptive to other people. The simple act of doing that is a demonstration of merciful love more than any working in a soup kitchen, 
more than any, giving money to the poor. All these things are important. But it's seeing the other person, seeing them in their dignity, and receiving them in that embrace is what merciful love is. And so we're called to do that with others. We're called to be the Father, to bring mercy and forgiveness. But also, we realize that God, our Heavenly Father, desires to do that to us. So when we talk about God being a, a merciful, loving Father, what do we mean? He wants to receive us. He wants to take us in and embrace us, even in our sin, even in our brokenness, when we're the dirtiest and the filthiest and we hate ourselves, just like that younger son. No questions. The simple movement towards him is enough to make him reach out to receive us and pull ourselves to him. And this is so crucial because this is the way that we come to our know, our identity as sons and daughters. We come to know him by allowing him to receive us in the gesture of merciful love. Our identity is not something we construct. We become sons and daughters because we received that identity from God, our Heavenly Father. And so when we've received that merciful love, when we know who we are, then it's going to be much easier for us to show it to others, to receive others. As Jesus says, to the one who has been given much, much will be expected, yes, but the one has been shown much mercy is going to be able to show mercy to other people. And so this might be sort of like frying some of your minds, particularly if any of you have studied theology of the body or marriage or gone to different talks. You normally talk about, in regards to marriage and love, the total gift of self. And that's what love is. It's particularly very big in John Paul II. If you love your spouse, you must give that sincere and total gift of self and love. We are called, Vatican II says, to give ourselves to others out of love. And this is very, very true. But there's another side of the coin. You're going to give yourself to others. There's got to be someone there to receive. Receptivity is the other side of the coin. And it's a part that we generally don't talk about. Because the truth is, it's much easier to give than to receive. To be able to receive something from another person, much less receive another person, and that demonstration of merciful love is something that's very difficult. But it's necessary if we're going to know our identity and have a relationship, to have that communion. We can't have communion of persons if we're separate, but only if we give and then receive the other person in this exchange of love. And so, as I said, during our time together, this idea of merciful love or receptivity to the other person is merciful love 
is going to be something that we visit over and over again in analyzing our spousal relationships, husbands and wives, but also our own personal relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. And that's what I want you to keep in your minds as you meditate. The embrace of the Son. The Father's embrace of the Son. We all know Rembrandt's very famous painting, The Prodigal Son, The Return of the Prodigal Son. You, you want to use that. That's the image. That is merciful love, where the Father embraces the Son, receives him in his totality as a person, even in his brokenness, his fallenness, his weakness. But this is all nice and theoretical, but I also would like to be a little bit practical. Uh, and I'm going to do my best to do that uh, and not just sort of give you all things to ruminate about over the course of your time. How practically do we, particularly do you as married couples, live out this receptivity as merciful love? How do you do it practically? How do we receive the other? Well, as I sort of mentioned in one of my examples, one of the first way we can do it is by listening to our spouse, not just uh-huh, 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 and let it go from one end to the other, but really looking at them, listening to their words, understanding their meaning, not just with our heads, but with our hearts. We know it when we believe that we've been fully understood. Because what happens? The sound waves we receive into our ears, they register in our brain. But when we're really heard, we realize that we've been received into the heart. And so when we really are intent about listening, we are receiving. And we're going to do this on a day-to-day -day basis. The other way that I think most people understand is physical affection, particularly touch. That's why we call it the marital embrace. This is where the husband and wife give, and give the gift and receive the gift. And so in a certain sense, listening tends to be a big thing for women and for men in general this demonstration of giving and receiving becomes important. But not just the marital embrace, it can't be just that. It's all those other tokens of affection. The hug, the kiss, the holding the hands, the, the gentle, tender caress. Because what happens? We receive feeling through our senses, through the nerve endings in our body. We are receiving the other person by that embrace, whatever sort of embrace it might be. But the most important way that we do it, and I'm probably going to revisit this over and over again over the course of our time, the best way that we receive other people is with our eyes, by truly seeing the other person. We often say, well, I saw that thing almost like my eyes are sending laser beams out to perceive what's outside of me. But we know that's not how it works. Light reflects off the object and it goes into our eyes. Our eyes are receptors. And so when we see another person, 
when we gaze upon them in their totality, we receive them. We all know what it's like to be looked at and really seen, to be perceived with eyes of merciful love. That simple gaze of looking and recognizing the other person can change lives. Pope Francis spoke about this one time when he talked about that desire that spouses have to be recognized and to be seen. Because so often, we just get so used to the routine, going to work, taking care of kids, we've lived with each other for 15, 20 years, we don't really see the other person. We don't receive them with that loving and merciful gaze. But all three of these things are through the senses, are through the body and the daily interactions. So if we, through our senses, are busy receiving the other, we create an environment where receptivity and merciful love on a much deeper level exist. And so when pain comes, when sin comes, when those broken relationships come, it is much easier to forgive and to show merciful love by welcoming back and receiving and embracing the beloved. Does this make sense? All right. And so this is all good. And we're going to come back to this about this need to be open to receiving the other person as a sign of merciful love. And we're going to revisit it. But it's the other side of the coin, not just about the giving and receiving, but what I'm going to explain now is the one that we're really going to focus on. Because it's difficult to be open to receive others in love. But if we go back to the parable, the father has to be open to seeing and receiving and embracing his son. But the son has to allow himself to be embraced. The son has to allow himself to be received in merciful love. Very easily, first of all, the son can say, I'm so terrible, I'm so bad, I hate myself, I hate my father, I'm not going back. I'm not even going to give him the chance to receive me in merciful love. Or if he came there, as the father went to reach out to him, he could have pushed away. Don't touch me. I'm a sinner. I don't want you near me. And so often, we do those things too. We can push people away who are trying to receive us. So the key is for the beloved is to allow the lover to receive us in merciful love. To God the Father, to allow him to receive us. Because so often we push back and we're going to look at the different reasons we do. And often, it's difficult with others. As others are trying to receive us, we're so filled with our own sin and shame and whatever else that we pull back. We say, I'm not worthy of being received. I'm not worthy of that merciful love. And so what happens is, it's broken again. 
the relationship is broken, not because, in this case, that the father doesn't want to receive, but the son doesn't want to be received. The son does not want to be embraced. But that embrace is so important. Embrace in a spiritual sense and even in a physical sense. I, I work with college students. For the, I haven't told you that yet. For the past nine years, I've been a campus minister. And I'm going to try to bring some of my experience into this. And I see a lot of young people, guys, mostly girls, who really don't know who they are. They're confused about their identity. They know that they're sons and daughters of God the Father, but they know it here in their head, but they don't know it in their heart. And so I've learned, I can tell you over and over again, God the Father loves you. You are a beloved daughter. That's not going to really have a lasting effect. What has to happen is an experience of being received by the Father. An experience of merciful love, particularly when we feel the worst, when we feel unlovable, when we feel broken, when we feel filled with sin. When we realize the Father is not there to judge us or cast us out, but to receive us. Once we experience that, then we know our identity. Then we can live under the gaze of the Father. And that's what I normally use in describing it. Not just the embrace, but are we living in the gaze of the Father? That the Father is looking on us, receiving us, showing us that we are beloved, giving us our identity as sons and daughters. Now this experience can come directly and come through prayer and meditation, but so often it comes through others. Our parents, primarily, friends, spouses, and we're feeling terrible, but they come and they receive us. And that gesture of mercy, wow, it can change things. It even can cause the feeling of ecstasy to go out of ourselves. That's what ecstasy means, ecstasis, to go out of yourself. And some of us in here might potentially have had an experience like this. Maybe you've had several experiences where you felt that embrace, where you allowed yourself to be received by the Father. And when we do this, that's when the transformation begins. And that cycle of giving and receiving, of receiving and allowing ourselves to be received in merciful love becomes much more fluid and real. So this is what we're going to explore tomorrow. This is the nice, easy stuff. Tomorrow is going to be a little bit more difficult. We're going to look at, from my experience, hopefully from your experience, the three main ways or three significant ways that we don't allow ourselves to be received by our spouses, by our friends, but ultimately by the Lord. What are these attitudes or conditions or things that stop ourselves, that we re resist allowing ourselves to be embraced by the Father? It's the ways that we ultimately reject merciful love. 
And so what I want to do is I want to close with a quote from, if you've ever been to one of my retreats, you know, I'm going to quote at least three people, St. Therese, Ratzinger, and Father Jacques Philippe. Uh, Father Jacques is coming to give a retreat later on. Very, if, you, if you could sign up for that, do it. And he has all these wonderful books. But I was just reading this this week because actually one of my directees sent it to me. And it's something that I read years ago. You ever do that where you, like you read something and you're like, oh, this is nice. But three years later, you read it again. You're like, whoa, how did I not see that? And Father Philippe has a really long quote. So we're going we're gonna to have a, a long reading at the beginning and a long reading at the end. We're going to bookmark it. But it's so powerful and so profound and quite possibly maybe we can make copies of it to, to hand out. It's, it's just one page. And it's from his book called Fire and Light. It's, it's, uh, it was published several years ago about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit in the first chapter, Spiritual Receptivity. And so I'm going to read this and hopefully read it kind of slowly, but I ask you to, to listen and to use this, along with everything else we've talked about, as sort of a theme for meditation. If it's too much for you, then just focus on the embrace of the Father and the Son as that embodiment of merciful love. But here's Father Healy. The Christian vocation calls us to give a lot, but to give a lot without falling into fatigue bitterness or disillusion, it is necessary to learn to receive. The merit doesn't consist in doing nor in giving a lot, but rather in receiving and loving a lot. St. Therese of Lisieux said, so look, we're quoting Jacques Philippe and Therese. We need to learn to receive. This is the most important yet also sometimes the most difficult part of the Christian existence. We have difficulty giving because we are trapped in our own avarice, egoism, and fear. But we also often fall, fail to receive. Even on a human level, it's sometimes easier to give than to receive, to love than to let ourselves be loved. That's basically allowing ourselves to be received. Giving can stoke our pride. I am the generous person who gives to others, who spins on them. Sometimes receiving is more difficult. It requires a kind of humility, recognizing that I need the other person and also demands confidence in others and openness to them, qualities that don't always come spontaneously. All of this is to say that to receive isn't always as easy as we think. Yet it is the most fundamental act of the spiritual life. The most fundamental act of the spiritual life. For we are creatures and we depend totally on the creator. We are also people who need to be saved and depend entirely on God's mercy. Something we have difficulty admitting. In truth, we would all more or less consciously like to take the place of God as the sources of what we are and what we accomplish by ourselves. Let us understand that what is most necessary and most fruitful in human life is just the opposite. A welcoming attitude of receptiveness, of receptiveness even, I would say, 
of passivity. And I'm giving you my own addendum here, the passivity of allowing yourself to be received. It is vitally important to learn to receive, to receive one's very own self along with everything from God. To the extent that we learn to receive everything from God, we can give to others the best of ourselves. And I think that really sums it up about the need to give, the need to receive, and to allow ourselves to be received. And so I'm going to wrap it up now. I didn't do too bad with the readings. It was about 40 minutes, so it's all right. The other ones may be a little shorter, maybe a little longer. I don't know. I haven't written them yet. We're going to figure it out. We'll go with the Spirit every year. Um, but I ask you to meditate on those things, um, and then we will begin tomorrow morning, uh, bright and early, or not too bright and early, by looking at that first obstacle to receptivity, to allowing ourselves to being received. So we'll close with glory be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Y'all have a great night.